Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Wilder's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Skin of Our Teeth, is a three-part allegory about the life of mankind, centering on the Antrobus family. George and Maggie, their children Gladys and Henry, and their maid, Sabina, of the fictional town of Excelsior, New Jersey. Tappan Wilder, Thornton's nephew, stopped into our offices for a conversation about his uncle's play. At the time of recording, Mr. Wilder was in New York to see a production of The Skin of Our Teeth at the Theater for a New Audience in Brooklyn which is the performance he references during this episode. Great, so we're talking about the skin of our teeth today. So let's let's start with a question about tapping with your personal encounters with this play. What's been your experience either in seeing the play, reading the play? Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad to start there because uh, this play's been uh, part of my life and my family's life for a very long time, and I... Uh, thinking that you might ask me that question, I was trying to remember my first production, and I'm pretty sure the one I remember was about, I was about 15 years old, and there was an enormous production of it on the banks of the Charles River, and my uncle Thornton was actually there. He often wasn't there, but they were giving him an award uh, for supporting the arts in the summertime, blah, 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 and uh, there were thousands of people who saw that show. I was one of them, and I don't remember sitting with my uncle, but I remember the first thing he said about the play, I remember that he loved to see it in the out of doors in the summertime because a thousand people could leave after the first act because they didn't understand it. Another thousand would leave after the second and there were still a couple of thousand people there to clap for the actors. <laughs> and that's not exactly perhaps what happened in Boston, but I just remember clearly, and I can't remember the numbers, that uh, he just got a great kick out of seeing it under the stars, under the skies, with a lot of people. So in case there were some pullouts, there were plenty of people left at the end. So that was about 1955. Then I, down through the years, I've seen it. I've seen a number of you know school productions, but the bicentennial production in New York, in Washington D.C. at the Kennedy Center, and that was uh, pretty memorable. And uh, uh, I've seen it on Broadway. I've seen it in Boston. And uh, I saw a production uh, Central Park a few in, in, uh, just at the end of the last century. I'm a great fan of John Goodman's, and he was simply fantastic. Blew me away, and on and on and on. Then I've seen it. I've seen. I've heard lectures about it. I've sat in classrooms where teachers were trying to teach this wonderful, complicated, crazy circus of a play, and. Uh, I've dealt now in my professional role of, of managing his intellectual affairs with translations of it and of course a great deal of old-fashioned primary research in archives about it in order to uh, write uh, notes or afterwards and give some talks about it over the years. So I feel comfortable with it. I'm not, our Town is his mo mo more famous play. Uh, but this one is pretty special uh, to to me and and uh, and also to my family. My father, his older brother, 
simply adored this play. Now he was a theologian and a liter uh, kind of a literary critic, and uh, he loved the, the larger use of myth and all the very good stuff that's in this play. It meant a great deal to him. Great. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about what this play is about. Now, there's a funny story <laughs> about the Broadway opening of this play, and audiences perhaps not quite sure what was going on. So perhaps you can tell us about that, and also give us a little bit of a of a summary about what this play is about. Yeah. Well, you have a family in a New Jersey suburb, and they're still there today. And there's this, this, the same house is there somewhere, just over the bridge. Daddy comes home from New York. But he and his wife have been married only 5,000 years. And they are going to live through the flood in the first act. They're going to uh, live, um, I'm sorry, they're going to live through the ice age in the first act. They're going to live through a flood in the second act, and then they're going to wrap it all up with war in the third act. They've got two kids. They've always had two kids. Uh, one of them is named Henry, and he used to be called Cain, but he killed his brother, and he's got a mark on his forehead. And uh, there's a maid who uh, is all over the play, very famous, uh, one of the most famous roles for any American actor, uh, named Sabina, and there's mammals. You know, your typical family, uh, typical family down through the centuries. How do they endure? How do they make it? And it's a crazy, as I call it, a circus. It's also known in the theater world as a Bible because my uncle had one, among many interests, I think one of his primary interests was showing people the magic of the stage, which meant also one other thing. The audience mattered to him more than anything. He was creating a world inside the theater in which everybody was a part and everybody was on the stage, all the emotions, all the feelings that we all have. He absolutely loved creating a kind of what I call a holistic world and you know the players are cutting out and talking to them and they are coming on the stage with chairs. He's trying to create a kind of a total environment in which everybody's learning about themselves and asking very important questions about where we're going and what we have to go there and whether we're getting any progress and blah blah blah. You've just described a bit about what we will encounter when we read or see this, this play and we talked about the fact that the family encounters the Ice Age and then the flood, and then the war. So we have all in New Jersey. It's pretty good. All in all in New Jersey. So we have mythical, we have biblical, we have mm -hmm. physiological, we have we have environmental events that are taking place all mm -hmm. in the span of two and a half hours time. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the backdrop against which this play was written, and, and why why Thornton pulls in all these things mm -hmm. into this play. Well, a great many of the themes in it were already in his uh, repertoire, if you will, when he was writing plays intensively after about 1931. But what kicked this off was the Second World War. And uh, he did Our Town in 1938, and he was then adapting The Beau Stratagem, a very famous uh, late restoration comedy, and Europe was slowly falling into war. Uh, and he was often in Europe and had uh, his particularly... A, an aunt living in London who was soon in the Blitz, and he wanted to do something that would explore the issues of the day, and he came on the idea of this play inspired by, by uh, uh, Finnegan's Wake. He was at the time one of the world's authorities on dissecting that incredible 600-plus page book, 
lecturing on it and the idea of man, M-A-N we would say, and woman today, uh, down through the age in their different, uh, uh, different incarnations. It was inspired by, uh, by Joyce and that was sort of the beginning of it. And between starting it and finishing it, he made trips to Latin America and to England. Uh, England was now very much at war, and in fact, he wrote a good deal of it in Quebec at Chateau Frontenac, the hotel in the country, in fact, already at war. By the time the play opened, he was in the military himself. It opened in uh, September 1942. He finished it, of course, much earlier. We were now at war, and he was in uniform. So he had very little to do with the production other than all kinds of phone calls <laughs> and letters. And uh, it's a very complicated story, and people began to walk out in New Haven. Uh, that's what it, it opened as the first tryout in New Haven, which was his town. I've often wondered whether they started there hoping, because it was a pretty complicated and unusual play, they might have put it there uh, because uh, Wilder had so many friends in the city, you know, that sort of paper the house with good friends. But they were walking out of the door, so already uh, they were very aware of how radical it, it was being perceived by people. Which is very interesting because we have modern audiences encountering this play today yeah. and talking about how, how contemporary it feels, how topical it feels, yep. how timely it feels. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, that's... Uh, Look, I'm his nephew, so uh, you've you got to be careful. But I happen to believe that my uncle asked the right questions and was devoted to the right uh, values of literally trying to reach the audience and, and reach the audience about things that are, were timeless. He was aware of that, that were timeless and inevitably timely. It's often said this play does well in periods of stress, and it's very famous after the war for being mounted in the rubble of the German cities and younger Germans finding an enormously uh, interesting and important experience. They remember it. Uh, I heard once uh, a lecture by Henry Kissinger as a young man seeing this play. It was terribly important to him as a young German. <coughs> and, uh, 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 and so we're always uh, under the gun, as it were, and the, uh, the play continues to speak that way because he nailed it in terms of the language. And I would, th you have to say, this is a man who borrowed experience. He borrowed myth. He, bo he borrowed the great stories from the past and what we learned from them. And he stuck them right into the th third act of the skin of our teeth. The books in this play at the end of the war are very, very important. And if people don't understand why those books are there and why readings from them, from Spinoza, uh, Plato, etc., they're all, all, if they don't get it, then they just don't get it. Because he did absolutely believe. Uh, it's often said that, but the play is circular because it ends the way it begins. This wonderful maid comes out and the play starts all over again just the way it began. But in fact, my uncle had a herky-jerky, if I may use that phrase, sense of how the world actually slowly is getting better. <laughs> it's hard to see, but occasionally an idea or a program which is established, which turns out to be, to, to prove its worth, and it's like a little piece of coral that gets stuck on the, on the coral reef. 
slowly getting there. So it's not circular, it's just, he's just very hard-headed about how long it's going to take us to get there. Well, and he even pulls in myth, you know, right from the start of the play with the, you know, the, the five major characters in the play. We have George Antropus, yes. who represents every, <laughs> the, yes. every man coming from Antropus, from the Greek. Mm-hmm. And we have Mrs. Antropus, who keeps the family together and is sort of the eternal mother, right? And we have their children, Gladys, who is... Say, you know the goodness that represents the goodness in human society. Even though she, you know, her lipstick in the first act and her red stockings in the third act kind of bring us back to the original sin of the the apple and all of that. And then we have Henry, very good point, who is evil, right? Who's ever, that's ever present. Mm-hmm. And then this. And he's still around Sabina. at the end of the play, you know. Right. And, and don't forget, sure. if you know your Bible, his descendants also committed murder. So we're <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. And then we have Lily Sabina, who's sort of. Lilith and the Eternal Temptress and yes. and and all of this and and that's that's interesting too because when you look at these characters can we say that these characters sort of change by the end of the play or do we think they sort of just go round and round or what is Wilder trying to say? Well, I think that in, each audience member has got to make up their mind about that. I happen to believe yes. I happen to believe there is subtle changes and they are not just cold. That's a wonderful one of the, my uncle's great achievements. He's trying to write every man plays, if you will. But in the end, he endows these characters with enormous amount of warmth and red blood. You really identify them with human beings and not just symbols. At least that's my view. And uh, anybody's free to agree with me. As I often say, I'm often wrong, but I am never in doubt. <laughs> well, I've often, we go back to some of, of Thornton Wilder's influences, he's often compared with Brecht. Yes. And the distinction that some draw is that Wilder imbues his characters with this great deep sense of humanity alongside the archetypes that he employs to make his point. Yeah. And I know you you've, you know quite a lot about this sort of parallels between Brecht and, and Wilder. Yeah, that's a good point because and, and uh, teachers uh, can make an awful lot out of that. That's a really important uh, contrast that uh, can be brought in studying this play against other plays. And Brecht, the obvious one, is, is, is Brecht. And also, Mother Courage, right? And Mother Courage, yeah, absolutely. And uh, makes a very rich experience. And there's a, there's a couple of very good articles about this. One in particular I'm thinking of, which is absolutely superb. It raises all those issues. It's one of a, a handful that really deserves to be put right up there with a flag and flung. <laughs> Uh, Wilder often described his play as a, a dramatic comedy or a comedy in comic strip. Yeah. Uh, but whatever term you use, there's a lot of humor in the skin of our teeth. So can you talk about that? Well, now, yes. Uh, that's a very big subject because if you... Today, particularly, and you and I are talking today, there doesn't seem to be a lot of humor in the world. You know, uh, What's going on in Washington and the world, uh, it seems like... Uh, most of my friends are screaming chicken little. <laughs> Sky is falling. <laughs> and But my uncle believed, I think, rather profoundly in the role of humor as a, <clears throat> uh, a way to keep us together and also to reveal some of the deepest feelings that we have about life. And that's a hard argument to make sometimes. It's another good subject, by the way, for a classroom discussion. Uh, and it's very interesting that 
the production of the skin of our teeth, which is now playing in uh, Brooklyn at the Theater for a New Audience, they titled the play A Tragic Comedy. I, when I heard that, at first I thought, you know, that's really good. I really like that. And I was reading uh, some material, and I came across something that I'd like to put on the record, if I may, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> and it's by that great writer, James Thurber. And he wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly in a case for comedy, which I'd like to send to all my friends who can't laugh. Uh, he writes this. He writes that the true balance of life and art, the saving of the human mind as well as the theater, lies in what has long been known as tragic comedy. For humor and pathos, tears and laughter are in the highest expression of human character and achievement inseparable. Uh, I think that's a, a marvelous statement and a profound statement, and he goes on to add, many dictionaries, including the OED, and we're supposed to, of course, genuflect before that, uh, that acronym, wrongly hyphenate tragic comedy as if the two integral parts were warring elements that must be separated. Uh, very important, I think, that we going forward, and now I'm preaching a little bit, but I'm the son of a preacher, so you've got to forgive me, that we all address the role of comedy, humor, and laughter in our lives uh, to a degree that perhaps we have not in the arts. And I think Thornton Wilder is one example and one tool that could be used in that kind of discussion and debate. And I'd just like to read one quote quickly. So this is a quote from a handwritten note which was written about 1960 that was found in Wilder's Yale archive um, that he says of Skin of Our Teeth. Anyone can see that the play affirms a belief in the survival of the human race. The race is often threatened and there are reasons to despair. The play attempts to illustrate some of the forces within the human being that contribute to his will to survive. Fortitude, a vision of mankind's capabilities, and the institution of the family understood as destiny and promise. Um, so one of the, I think one of the major themes of the skin of our teeth is this survival um, in, in spite of dramatic catastrophe, which I think is a really valuable um, kind of takeaway for, for modern audiences and, and maybe even you know, younger audiences. I, I just think, you know, this is, um, I can't, well, perhaps the way to say it is that Thornton Wilder as a figure uh, as a writer, lived a rather lonely life on the road. This was a man traveling all the time. He did not write easily and often in his so-called study in Hamden, Connecticut, next to New Haven, where which was his base of operations. He wrote on boats at sea, wrote in hotels, blah, blah, blah. He lived, and he, he, he just, he loved to travel and it's a phrase I often use, he was the eyes on the wall, just observing people, loving them in all their imperfections and admiring human beings very much and really impressed on how much weight they carried and, and how they carried it off. So in a way, that's, an, that's a good question. It's like this is a study of somebody trying to figure out 
what does endure. We think of Emily, for example, what she learned uh, in our town and shared with an audience which goes out of the theater often in tears because that plays about them. It's not just about Emily. He even puts the audience in our town right on the stage. It's a graveyard scene, but they're looking at the, suddenly the audience is looking at the audience. It's amazing what he does to the games and, 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 the, and the play we're talking about. Uh, those break, breakout, very difficult, by the way, I'm changing the subject slightly, if I may, very difficult for actors, even professional actors, it's one of the difficulties of this play, handling those breakouts because they have to sound so natural. You're talking about where he breaks the yeah. fourth wall and he breaks the fourth wall and the actors come out. And uh, Sabina addresses them and then how they do that. And then the f terribly important third act where Henry, you know, breaks down and tries to strangle his father. Uh, practically kill him. Uh, in fact, there's a lot going on in the third act. How do you do that? That's not easy for actors. It's very demanding. I think it's one reason they love doing it. It really is a full course meal. So I saw. I just recently saw a production of The Skin of Our Teeth um, and was listening to a lot of the audience feedback coming out of that show and also talking to some of my cohorts having seen the show yeah. about... The, the female figures that Wilder creates in this play in particular and how absolutely modern and moving a lot of um, what comes out of their mouths is. There's a particular speech in Act 2 where Mrs. Antrobus pulls a message in a bottle out of her handbag and she casts it into the ocean and she said, there's a message in there. And she in, in that speech, I'm paraphrasing, but she talks about... Um, in that message is written everything that a woman knows, a woman knows. Yeah. and if any man find that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what does he say? They will find the secret that changes the world, so to speak. Right. Yeah, yeah. it's an enormously important speech. It's an extremely powerful speech, and a lot of everything that you're you're hearing coming out of those female characters feels like it could have been written yesterday and not in 1942. And when you think about <coughs> the fact that it was written in 1942, it's just extremely startling because no one was writing in that way then. And the effect that that must have had on both the women and the men in the audience seeing the show for the first time must have been earth-shaking. Yeah. You know, that speech, plus also <coughs> Sabina's speeches, all the major speeches in that play are by women. And and I think it's fair to say. And it's... Uh, it's just a, a symbol of, of how important and how interested he was in, 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 in woman and her role in society and felt she, he really did not feel they'd gotten a fair shake and how proud I am of my uncle that he was perhaps ahead of his time. You also said, and, and again, that from a teaching point of view, that's obviously extremely timely and important, very important. One thing you, I do want to pick up, though, uh, is, is that when when we started putting together, for example, the new reader edition for HarperCollins, uh, I wanted a woman to write the introduction. And that's why we picked Paula Vogel. Because this is about family and the, the, the woman's place in, in the endurance, uh, the endurance of the family, complicated and whatnot, is awfully important. And I, I thought just the way we asked Penelope Niven to write the Wilder biography, that woman would would be a better choice. 
Now, I, I may be wrong, but I don't think so. And Paula Vogel left at the opportunity to write the introduction because she loves that play so much. And I thought that was uh, uh, kind of an important footnote to add to what you say. Very, very interested in what she had to say about the play. And it's, I think, one of the most beautiful things ever written about Thornton Wilder. He's inspired by examples of, I keep saying woman with a capital W in his own family. One very important figure is his Aunt Charlotte, who was a world's YWCA official and was in London. He saw her when he was there during the writing of this play uh, and the role that women were playing in getting children and also out of London during the war. And his own mother, who uh, had did not have an easy marriage and had a lot of kids, uh, stood tall. And how interesting that four of her five children all become writers and all dedicate books to her. In the third act of the play, we hear echoes of a play that Wilder had written about ten years prior called Pullman Car Hiawatha. Right. Um, and and it, it's very interesting to sort of look at those two pieces in tandem. Can you talk a little bit about the connections between those two plays, especially in the third act of The Skin of Our Teeth? Yeah, he, he, he uh, came up with the idea in Pullman Car Hiawatha in the early 30s of having some of the great ideas represented and uh, the planets represented. They're a part of our world, they're above us, and he transposed that in a different way with some a number of changes into the uh, third act of uh, The Skin of Our Teeth. And it turns out to be very effective because it's such a pure example of what he means is we are surrounded, we hope, <laughs> he certainly believes, <laughs> by some extraordinary ideas that stuck and they are ideas that are going to bring us together rather than drive us apart. After all, he's an artist, a great artist, and I happen to think the great artists write material which attempts to unite rather than to divide. This is not propaganda. And he draws from the for Spinoza, he draws from the Bible, and what he does is have, <clears throat> and the books on the stage, of course, and what he does is have absolutely ordinary people read them, not the actors. He has the wardrobe mistress read, he has a dresser, he has uh, uh, two, two others, I can't, they represent, you know, the back, backstage people who are just ordinary people. It's like pulling them out of the audience. That is just pure Wilder. That's not only a device to make everybody giggle and laugh, he's making a very profound statement that we all live together and we're all strive together, and that's his democratic vision. So why do you think directors and audiences keep coming back to the skin of our teeth 75 years later? Well, here's what surprised me about this play in recent years. And uh, again, you know, when I, it was more than 10 years ago, we were pulling together this reader edition, which we, uh, I know we're going to be revising. I thought, gosh, I did not realize how fresh it continues to be. I was thinking people would be rather familiar with it and familiar with many of the theatrical devices in it, which have been so influential in the lives of many uh, 
many playwrights, and we see on television cutouts and all sorts of things. We're kind of familiar with it. But it turns out to be extremely fresh still, and that's rather exciting from my point of view. And I realize people have heard of it, but they haven't seen it. You know, they're very familiar usually with our town. They, many of them were in it in high school, in the audience, or uh, on the tech crew, you know. As people go, you ask for hands when I talk, the hands go up. But Skin of Our Teeth, yeah, they've heard of it, but they haven't seen it. Now, it's done a lot in the high school business. My many high schools do it every year, but professional productions are fewer and farther between. And I think that's where the visibility comes. Uh, it turns out to be a very good teaching tool because there's so much you can draw on in terms of <clears throat> learning about dramatic technique and also how, as we've been talking about, myth and allegory, all those things, and large questions about whether society is getting anywhere. Big stuff that students resonate to and teachers can teach on, and there's a lot of material about it. But it turns out to be, when you see it, you see something quite fresh. It's almost like a new play. And we talked about how, how he, my uncle uh, nailed all these emotions, all these feelings are still with us today, and they're not dated. They're fresh. Right. And, we and that's a surprise. That was a surprise. And very exciting to me, because uh, uh, I want my uncle appreciated, and it turns out this play is helping quite a lot. And especially now, unfortunately, that we're facing things like climate change and the refugee yeah. crisis, I think, whether intentionally or not, yeah. those things are very present in this work. That's true. And there was a big change after the Second World War. I mean, the war's over, and suddenly the atomic bomb was dropped. And if you go back and look at the productions of this play after the war, uh, one of the first major ones, for example, it showed an atom <laughs> on the cover. Everybody's now interested in the atom bomb as the next threat. And uh, even in Europe, there was a production of the play where they uh, tried to turn the third act into a sort of a Fukushima business, you see. Well, that's understandable. But it turns out that the play still allows for all that. And it turns out, yes, human beings are threatening each other all the time, and the play is ever timeless and ever uh, appropriate and ever relevant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.